Welcome back to our special mini-series on opioids brought to you by the IFF Health and Safety Division. My name is Sarah Burns, Behavioral Health Specialist at the IFF. In this series, we're continuing to learn about opioids, and today's discussion is going to focus on opioid treatment. How are opioid disorders treated? I'm happy to welcome back my colleague, Lauren Kosk, Licensed Clinical Professional Counselor and IFF Behavioral Health Specialist. Welcome back, Lauren. Thanks for having me back, Sarah. It's great to continue our discussion from the last episode. Um, so I know addictions are treatable. Um, what are the goals of treatment for opioid addiction? Yeah, so addiction is definitely treatable, and um, it is a progressive disease, though. So without treatment, we know that it will probably get worse if you do nothing, right? So uh, this is certainly the case for opioid addiction. The goals for treatment for opioid addiction are generally the same as for other types of substance use disorders. Of course, the primary goal of treatment is to eliminate or reduce one's substance use. So whether a person subscribes to a total abstinence-based approach or a harm reduction approach, um, which means they're using much less of the substance, that decision really depends on their individual treatment needs and the clinical recommendations from their team. So for anyone that's interested in long-term recovery from opioid addiction, detox is really the first place to start. So detox, of course, is a medically supervised process of allowing toxic substances to leave the body while monitoring and treating for any acute withdrawal symptoms that come up during that time. So in an inpatient detox, a doctor or nursing team will closely monitor the person's vitals to determine how they're doing as they cope and uh, you know, as they come off of the drug. A typical inpatient hospital detox might last somewhere from two to five days, but it really is an individual process that um, really takes into account a lot of factors in terms of uh, how long the, the detox will actually take. So this, these factors might include um, what type of opioid the person was addicted to, how long they were using it, um, how frequently and at what quantity they were using the opioid. Um, the time it takes to detox is also impacted by the person's age and their overall health, as well as any medications that are used during the detox process. And then if the person is addicted to any other co-occurring addictions uh, to non-opioid substances. So a lot can go into what an individual's detox experience is like. Um, but withdrawal symptoms are usually the most intense and severe in the first 72 hours or so. It is possible, though, that a, a person could continue to experience symptoms for even days after that or weeks after they discontinue use, which is why it's so critical that someone transitions immediately from detox to that next stage of treatment, whatever that is, um, often a residential program or maybe an intensive outpatient program. But the transition to that next uh, phase of treatment really needs to be seamless and have no lapses to give the person the best chance at success. To start the recovery process, one of the first most important goals of treatment is really for the person to uh, really learn about addiction as a progressive chronic disease and recognize their own stage of addiction. So sometimes we call this self-diagnosis. It's not uncommon for someone entering treatment to think that they don't have a problem or they really can't recognize how much their substance use has impacted their daily functioning until they really can see on paper how is this uh, disease defined and what are some of the 
what is some of the criteria. Another goal of treatment would be to help the person identify triggers. In other words, the people, places, things, or experiences that produce cravings to use the drug. So after recognizing some of these daily triggers that have continued to fuel the addiction, the person can work on building other coping strategies or skills to help them manage cravings and reduce daily stress. And this is really important because even after the physiological cravings of opioid addiction have subsided, a person can still have what we might call emotional cravings. So this means certain emotional states or experiences can trigger an urge for the person to use. And because the addicted person has not really allowed themselves to actually feel these experiences and emotions in a long time, they've kind of have just been numbed out by the substance, whether it's opioids or alcohol, um, their tolerance for just distress might be quite low. So it's important to um, learn how to actually feel these feelings and regulate them using you know, some different coping skills. Another goal of treatment um, is really supporting a patient to develop other life skills that might be important for just managing their life without this substance. So these are really practical everyday skills that we might take for granted, including how to look for a job or how to meet friends, how to socialize, how to live independently, or even you know, keep a daily schedule. Once a person has gained some of these coping skills and then just practical life skills, Another goal of treatment is to really help restore the person back to capacity for daily functioning. So getting that person back to a place where they can actually resume daily responsibility related to work, school, childcare, or managing things at home. And then lastly, I would say, you know, one of the really most important goals of treatment is to empower that person to build a healthy social support system around them. So we know that a person's support system is really the foundation for long-term recovery. Um, the person needs to foster relationships in their life that are going to help them stay on track with recovery and all the changes they've made. So Lauren, I've heard you mention sort of two broad approaches um, to treatment, one being abstinence-based treatment and the other being harm reduction. Could you tell us a little more about those and the differences? Yeah, so traditionally in the field of addiction treatment, um, we have used a abstinence-based treatment approach. So abstinence means recovery is achieved through total lifelong abstinence from all mood-altering substances. This includes maintenance medications as well as often any kind of psychiatric medications. Um, so increasingly, the more that we learn about addiction and understand um, how people achieve long-term recovery and sobriety, the concept of total abstinence um, continues to be contradicted by a growing body of research. The United States Surgeon General reports that uh, research clearly demonstrates that for opioid use disorder specifically, medication-assisted treatment does lead to better treatment outcomes and reduced rates of relapse when compared to behavioral treatments alone. So medication-assisted treatment is what we would consider a harm reduction approach to recovery. So this means that recovery is achieved through a set of practical strategies that reduce the negative consequences associated with substance use. So rather than focusing on total abstinence from any kind of mood-altering substance, there is some room for or inclusion of, of tools that um, 
that help the person to mitigate some of the negative consequences of, of, of their addiction. So in this case, medication-assisted treatment um, or medications, maintenance therapy medications um, that help the person manage withdrawal symptoms um, while allowing them to slowly taper off the medications and, and become more stable in their daily life. This would be considered a harm reduction approach to treatment. So with harm reduction, what we're really talking about is meeting people where they're at. So if somebody is not ready, not, not able, not willing to completely stop use of all substances, we can still help them. We can help them reduce by any amount their use of opioids or other substances, and even that can have positive impacts. Right. So meeting someone where they're at would be a really appropriate way to describe harm reduction approaches to treatment. Um, so we know specifically with opioid use disorder, opioid addiction, um, the physiological need and the craving to continue using the drug is so powerful that to expect someone to quit using this substance cold turkey or to um, abstain completely from any kind of medication that works on opioid receptors in the brain, for some people this is really a setup. Um, and worse, for, for some it might lead to um, um, trying to ob obtain uh, opioids in other ways, so regressing to other substances like um, heroin or even fentanyl um, to continue to keep up with that habit. So again, harm reduction strategies are those that really use a practical um, set of approaches that help reduce the negative consequences associated with use rather than focusing primarily on having someone abstain for the rest of their lives from all mood-altering substances. So two really different approaches. Yeah, I think it really just points to what we've said all along, that there is no one-size-fits-all, that a lot of this needs to be a discussion between the person and their treatment team um, and is individualized. Exactly. Got it. Um, so let's get into a little more about treatment and what maximizes success for treatment um, or what might prevent people from getting the help they need. Um, so what are some of the factors that impact if a person actually gets the, the treatment that they need? Yes. So I think there are, um, you know, really a lot of factors that could impact if someone actually ends up seeking that help that they need and then if they stick with the help. So it's really important to remember that when someone is revived from an opioid overdose in the community or admitted to the hospital for detox from opioids, these are medical procedures that help stabilize the person physiologically, but they do nothing to address the social and emotional and environmental aspects of living without the drug, which is, that's what recovery is, right? So. Um, this is where residential or intensive outpatient treatment becomes really essential. Um, and there are a lot of reasons why someone might not make it to that next phase of, of treatment and getting help. In some cases, the person just isn't ready or isn't willing to begin the recovery process. In other factors, however, um, um, there are a number of things that, that can impact whether someone gets the help. So just access to residential or outpatient treatment um, you know, we know that there are not enough treatment programs um, in the United States to treat all of the people that are addicted to these to, uh, to opioids. Also, health insurance or the lack thereof. 
um, ability to pay for ancillary costs of treatment, such as medication. So the medications that are used to effectively treat opioid use disorder are often a completely separate cost than the actual treatment program itself, the outpatient or residential treatment program. Um, stable housing is a really important factor. Um, having a sober living environment. So you know, even if you have a stable place to live, are the people that are in your home using substances or using alcohol? That can certainly impact someone's capacity to stay sober and stay with treatment. Transportation to and from treatment is a challenge for some people. Um, someone might also be dealing with legal issues or childcare issues, um, or just lack a, um, a good social support system around them. So these are all factors that can impact whether someone gets connected to treatment and then really stays with that treatment program. You know, one example I'll share is, um, you know, if a person enrolls in an outpatient treatment program, for example, but is still living on the streets or can't afford the cost of their medications, the risk of relapse is extremely high. So, um, you know, these are some other factors that we want to consider. Um, and um, I think it's, it's important for fire service personnel and also healthcare providers to be aware of, of all of these factors because while they might be treating the same patient several times in the community or in an inpatient setting, um, you know, and feel frustrated, why, do, why is this person continuing to come back? Why aren't they, you know, sticking with uh, their treatment program? There really are a lot of other factors that can impact the person's capacity to stick with that treatment program. Yeah, Lauren, so that sounds like there's a lot of structural factors that can really get in the way or be uh, roadblocks for somebody who's addicted who's trying to get treatment. Absolutely. So let's shift a little bit. Tell me about the different types of treatments. What types of behavioral health treatments um, are out there for opioid addiction? Um, and when is each one best used? So when it comes to behavioral treatments for opioid addiction or really any addiction, there's no single approach that is the best approach for everyone. The right treatment approach is the approach that will work best for that specific individual at that time with that specific problem under those unique circumstances. So it really does vary what is gonna be the best approach for that person. Um, the American Society for Addiction Medicine and the American Psychological Association have identified several behavioral approaches that we know are effective in treating opioid use disorder, often when used in combination with medication and other support services, which is what we call medication-assisted treatment, which I think we'll get to a little bit later. Um, but some of the behavioral approaches that we would consider effective for treating opioid use disorder include cognitive behavior therapy. So um, this is a type of therapy that's about understanding the connection between unhelpful thinking and unhelpful patterns of learned behavior, such as using substances. Um, contingency management or behavior therapy is another treatment approach that reinforces positive behaviors like good treatment attendance or getting uh, negative urine screens um, in exchange for some kind of positive reward. Uh, motivational enhancement or motivational interviewing is about motivating a person to discover their own reasons that are personally meaningful and relevant to them for getting sober and staying sober. Um, there's also evidence that couples and uh, family therapy is effective in treating opioid use disorder. So this kind of approach would involve at least one family member. It could be a parent, a spouse, a significant other, a child even, 
um, to try to address the substance use through the family system in which the, the drug use has developed and been maintained. Um, and then lastly, uh, mutual aid support groups. So this is basically 12-step um, programs, self-help groups, um, smart recovery meetings. So these are non-clinical self-help meetings that occur in the community, which bring people together around some kind of shared struggle um, and individuals can provide accountability and support to each other. So those are some of the behavioral approaches that we know are effective for treating opioid use disorder. I do wanna mention that this list is not exhaustive. So there might be other approaches that have been used successfully to treat opioid addiction, but we don't have enough information on them at this time or research, um, or there may be a lack of consensus among how effective they are among experts. So normally a treatment is classified as evidence-based only after it's been subjected to rigorous research and scientific study. Often the treatments that obtain funding for this kind of uh, research are already well established within the field. So I share that just to say that, um, you know, there might be other approaches or treatments that are effective for treating opioid addiction, but it really does take many years for these other approaches to be recognized and fully accepted within the medical community. So Lauren, you just gave us a rundown of a lot of different behavioral treatments um, that can be used for opioid addictions. Um, what about some of the other non-behavioral treatments? Yeah, so medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder um, is some, sometimes referred to as MAT or MAT, um, is the use of specific FDA-approved medications to physiologically stabilize the body combined with structured behavior therapy, so some of those behavioral approaches I just mentioned, and community-based support services. So medication-assisted treatment can begin as part of an inpatient or outpatient detox process and is really essential for so many people that live in recovery today from this disease. The FDA-approved uh, medications that we have um, and use to treat opioid use disorder work by normalizing the person's brain chemistry and basic functions of the body. So these medications help relieve opioid cravings. And most importantly, they block the euphoric effects of opioids and alcohol. So this means if someone tries to use opioids while on these medications, they basically will have no effect and the person won't be able to get high. Again, the, these medications work by helping to restore balance to the brain um, so the person um, can really benefit from, um, from the behavioral treatments that they're engaged in, stay engaged in those treatments and experience some stability in their life. Right now we have three FDA approved medications that are used to treat opioid use disorder. They are methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. And it's really important that um, any patient that's taking these medications and their significant other understand that dependence on these medications does not equate to addiction. It is considered long-term maintenance um, therapy for some individuals that choose to stay on the medications in the long term. Each of these medications definitely has um, advantages and drawbacks. Um, despite the fact that we know these medications are effective in helping a person stay off of illicit and prescription opioid drugs um, that they were previously abusing, starting and staying on a maintenance medication uh, isn't the right choice for everyone. You know, people have different personal 
uh, medical and occupational reasons for not wanting to take these medications. I would also add that there are other medications than those I've mentioned here today that can be used to treat the symptoms associated with opioid use disorder, even though they're not approved by the FDA to um, treat opioid use disorder itself. So I think we're gonna be exploring some of those medication options later in the podcast series. So a lot of different choices um, mm -hmm. for somebody who's seeking treatment for opioid use or other substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. um, when you were talking about medication-assisted treatment, what I'm hearing is that it's not magic, that it's an adjunct to some of the behavioral treatments that you also talked about. Is that right? Yeah, it's really the three components working together, having access to medications and making a personal choice to use them or not. The second component, again, are, are the behavioral approaches and treatments we mentioned. And then the third component is really having, um, you know, recovery support services and wraparound services. Okay. What are those? Tell us a little bit more about recovery support services. Yeah. So the role of recovery support services um, within medication-assisted treatment or as a supplement to really any kind of treatment is to directly engage the person both during and after the treatment process through services that are going to help them sustain some of the positive gains that they've made in earlier stages in treatment and really help them build a sustainable and stable life. So some of these services include case management services that might be provided by an agency um, or a treatment program that the person is enrolled in. Um, again, mutual aid support groups. So 12-step groups like AA or NA, or also smart recovery meetings that are you know, free meetings that occur in the community. Um, having access to a sponsor. So often um, with self-help groups like the 12-step programs, you can have access to a one-to-one -one sponsor that provides some accountability and support. Recovery coaching, peer support services, faith-based services. So these are all different ways um, that the community can engage that individual that's trying to live in recovery by providing them different levels of social support. Sometimes to meet just simple um, needs of emotional support, and sometimes these services can help address practical needs that the person may have. So really a ton of options that you've covered so far. Um, and I, I'm wondering if, you know, someone's out there living with uh, an addiction to opioids and they're ready to get help, or perhaps, you know, so one of our listeners is a peer support team member who's tasked with coming up with a referral list you know, if members come to them and need to get into treatment, um, what should people be looking for when they select a treatment program? Yeah, there are um, really a number of things that you want to look for. No program is completely perfect, but we, um, you know, there are definitely some critical components that we know there are evidence for um, in terms of helping someone, um, you know, enter and sustain recovery from opioid use disorder. So the U.S. Surgeon General and the American Psychiatric Association um, have identified these six critical components for evidence-based treatment for opioid use disorder. Um, so if someone's looking for, uh, for a treatment program, they want to keep these components in mind. Um, one, the program should offer, of course, personalized diagnosis, assessment, and treatment uh, planning. So when uh, it comes to addiction and recovery, we, we know that one size doesn't fit all. Treatment planning should definitely start with a thorough diagnostic individual assessment that takes into account 
all of the person's history, social and medical history, before deciding on a treatment course of action. Um, second, the program should offer some kind of long-term management. So research clearly tells us that addiction is a chronic disease that will often need to be managed throughout the lifetime. Um, so a program should include access to some kind of long-term outpatient treatment as needed. Also, access to FDA-approved medications used to treat opioid use disorder is important. So some of the medication options we just, we just uh, discussed. Um, use of these medications is, again, an individual choice between the patient and the prescriber, but a good treatment program for opioid use disorder will have access to these medications. Also, the program should have effective behavioral interventions that are delivered by a trained and competent staff. So of course the goal of behavior therapy is to help the person learn to live without the drug. And this often involves modifying different thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors um, through the course of therapy. Um, so the program uh, should be able to provide um, you know, some of these behavioral treatments that we mentioned. Also the program should offer some coordination of care for any co-occurring conditions. So opioid use disorder rarely develops without their co-occurring psychiatric or medical problems. This means that behavioral health clinicians, therapists, really need to work directly with other medical providers um, and specialists to work collaboratively and ensure that their treatment goals for the patient are aligned. And then lastly, the program should offer some kind of access to recovery support services. So some of those services that I just discussed um, you know, these are going to be services that help the person build their social support network and really help them build a stable and sustainable life uh, by really helping them navigate um, all of the new challenges that can exist in, um, in, in life without, um, without drugs and alcohol. So really a, a lot of different things um, that we want good treatment programs to have. Right. It sounds like um, a list that it is or can be a little bit overwhelming. Um, how would somebody find out the answers to all of those different questions from a, a treatment program that's nearby or that, that they might be interested in? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, I mean, any um, initial step to treatment would start with calling and making an appointment. It is appropriate to ask some of these questions directly over the phone before making an appointment. Um, it's also appropriate to ask and get more information about the different, uh, you know, aspects I just mentioned during the initial intake process. So the initial intake is normally an opportunity for the patient to, you know, to share their history, to share what problems they're struggling with, but it's also an opportunity for the patient to really interview the treatment program and to get some of their questions answered in terms of their capacity to provide some of these evidence-based components of treatment. So a lot of the information that we've covered so far has been about the general treatment of opioid addictions, you know, among civilians in the general population. Um, but I know there are some specific occupational considerations for firefighters. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So as we've discussed, when we're talking about medication-assisted treatment for opioid use disorder, we're talking about three critical factors that go into that treatment approach. One is the use of these FDA approved medications that I mentioned, two is behavioral therapy, and then three is the recovery support services. So two of the three FDA approved medications that we have to treat opioid use disorder, methadone and buprenorphine, 
work by controlling cravings and managing symptoms of withdrawal. Because these medications activate opioid receptors in the brain, they are considered narcotics. So NFPA 1582 is the industry standard on occupational medical programs for fire departments. And it clearly states that narcotics can alter mental status to include reaction time, a person's judgment, and just overall cognitive function. So therefore, these medications really can impact a member's ability to safely perform their job. So for a member that's taking a medication to treat opioid use disorder, such as methadone or suboxone, the department physician is required to consider how these medications impact that member's ability to function at work and then place any relevant job restrictions on that member that the department does have to follow. So these restrictions might include not being permitted to run calls, um, ride on the engine, or perform lots of the essential daily tasks that make up a firefighter's day and schedule. Uh, also for candidates, we need to consider for, for candidates or, or individuals that are applying to open positions within a fire department, NFPA 1582 classifies any condition that requires frequent treatment with narcotics as a category A condition, which means the candidate wouldn't be recommended for hire because they have a medical condition, in this case, opioid use disorder, that requires them to frequently use narcotics as a part of their treatment. So that's something that uh, candidates to the department really need to keep in mind as well. Um, and then really both for, for candidates and for members who are currently in the department um, that are in recovery from opioid addiction, there is a lot to really carefully weigh and consider in terms of both the short-term and long-term risks of staying on these medications or deciding to get off the medications. It's really a highly personal decision for the firefighter that needs to take into account their uh, long-term recovery goals, um, the history of their addiction and kind of, um, you know, what has gone into that, how long they've been coping with this addiction, um, as well as their short and long-term occupational goals, what they want from this career, how long they want to be in this career, um, as well as their overall health. The National Fire Protection Association, NFPA, um, the 1582 standard, which is the industry standard on medical programs for fire departments, do classify um, conditions that require the use of ongoing narcotic medications as a category A condition, which basically means you cannot work on active duty while taking these medications. So of course, this can be very prohibitive for fire service personnel who are seeking to get back to work. Um, and they really need to carefully weigh and consider what treatment options they have, including what medications are going to be best for them, and really balance the need to directly treat the addiction while also considering um, what are their other needs in terms of being able to get back to work. You know, so that really is, a, can be, I think, a difficult decision, um, but there are options. There are other options that we can use. Um, to treat some of the symptoms associated with opioid use disorder and dependence. Um, and I believe we're going to be learning a little bit more about some of those medication alternatives later in this series. Thanks, Lauren. You're right. That's a great lead-in to our next episode, which will cover the special treatment considerations for firefighters. 
Uh, Lauren, thank you again for a great conversation. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. To access the other videos and podcasts in this series, visit opioidepidemic.iff.org. Content was supported by the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences of the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Energy under award number UH4ES009759. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not necessarily represent the official views of the National Institutes of Health or the Department of Energy.